0: All right, it's good to have you all here this morning. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting from Anderson because of the power failure. Grateful to have you here this morning. So I don't know if Satan can mess with the weather. Like, I don't know if that was him last night. Uh, It would have been a good Saturday night for him to choose, though, because our passage this morning is all about him. Actually, Genesis chapter 3 has a lot to say to us about Satan, about his strategies against us. So turn to Genesis 3. That's where we will be this morning. Well, I don't know if you guys remember when this happened. I remembered I was about uh, let's see, just a little kid, elementary school age kid. At 1:23 a.m. on April 26, 1986, a reactor blew up at the Chernobyl Nuclear Power Plant in the Soviet Union. Huge explosion, blew the top right off the reactor, released so much radioactive waste into the environment that the Soviets had to evacuate and permanently resettle 350,000 people. Whole cities were abandoned overnight, still abandoned today. Actually, they have a a zone 19 miles around the reactor in any direction that is fenced off. You you can't go there. That area will not be safe for human occupation for another 20,000 years. Worst nuclear disaster ever. And so scientists have spent a lot of time studying what went wrong on that fateful night in 1986 at Chernobyl. And they've studied it, and what they have discovered is that the failure at Chernobyl did not begin with the explosion. Actually, it began a long time before that with a series of seemingly small, insignificant, bad decisions that went back all the way to years earlier when the reactor was designed and built. The engineers didn't anticipate what could go wrong with it. And then after years of nothing bad happening, managers began to let safety slide. They did not clarify safety procedures. They made expedient decisions. They cut corners. And all of those seemingly small, bad decisions led up to that catastrophic failure. What you learn from that, a lesson in all of life, serious failures rarely happen in an instant. Serious failures, they they rarely happen in an instant, just boom. No, they are almost always caused by a long series of seemingly insignificant bad decisions that lead up to that moment of catastrophic failure. That is true not only for nuclear failures, it is true for spiritual failures as well. That's exactly how spiritual failures work. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. All of us here, we've sinned. And so I, I know that every one of us have experienced that moment of, of intense regret, right after we've committed some serious sin, and, and guilt and shame kick in. And you ask yourself, how could I have done this thing? How, how could I have committed this sin? Maybe it's a sin that you committed. You would never do that thing. Or maybe it's a sin that you had committed in the past and you promised you'd never do it again. And you can't believe it. You have. You feel regret kicking in as you think about those horrible words that came out of your mouth when you blew up at your spouse or your kids or your roommate. How could I have said those things? Or you feel incredible regret when you realize that yet again you went too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend. After you committed to one another, you'd never do that again. Or you feel regret because you lied or or you cheated and you just feel so guilty over it. Or you feel regret because you looked at pornography again after swearing you'd never do it. Or you feel regret because you ate too much or you uh, spent too much or you drank too much and you feel so bad about it. You feel like such a failure. In those moments of intense regret when we have given in to some serious sin, what God wants us to understand is failures rarely happen in an instant. Sin didn't just pop up out of the blue, all of a sudden you failed. No, failures happen through a series of seemingly small, insignificant, bad decisions that's how sin always works. It doesn't come out of the blue. It comes through a progression of temptation in your life. A progression of wrong thoughts, of wrong attitudes, of wrong actions that lead you down the track of sin. So that's what God wants us to understand. That's kind of the bad news of Genesis chapter three, but it can be turned to good news. There's good news for us this morning because our failures, our our sins don't occur in an instant. There is good news for us. Here it is. If we can learn to recognize the progression of temptation in our lives, then we can stop sin in its tracks. That's great news. Sin never happens in an instant. There is always a progression of temptation. If you can learn to recognize that progression of temptation happening in your life, then you can take corrective measures and stop sin before it occurs. That's what we're going to learn to do this morning. As we look at Genesis chapter 3, just verses 1 through 6. Now our passage this morning, it is kind of the, the spiritual equivalent of Chernobyl. This is the, the worst day in, in all of human history, spiritually speaking. Mankind's greatest failure. Today, we will look just at Adam and Eve's temptation and sin. The consequences of that sin, that's for next week. The fallout from Adam's sin is so catastrophic, it needs a sermon of its own. So come back next week for that fun one. Uh, We'll look at the consequences next week. This week, we're just going to look at the temptation and sin itself in verses 1 through 6. So let's set things up. Let's set the scene for a moment. Let's review. What is true at the end of chapter 2, right before we get to chapter 3? Well, first... We have a very good creation. God has made all things. And remember, what does God say at the end of chapter one? He says, all of this is very good. There is no sin. There is no evil. There is no pain. There is no suffering in all of creation. It is all very good. And at the center of this very good creation, God places his image bearers. He gives them authority over all of creation to rule it on his behalf. That's Adam and Eve. Human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, are given his authority over the earth. So he crowns Adam and Eve with authority, and he provides for them. We saw that in Genesis 2. He provides for all of their needs, a rich garden full of all the food they could ever need. He gives them companionship with each other. He gives them peace with creation. And best of all, he gives them himself. Every day in the cool of the day, God would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, so so they have everything they could ever want. God provides for all of their needs, but he does give them one prohibition. There is one thing that God says no, to. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We saw that tree in chapter two. Now, what is going on with that tree? We, we, don't, we don't really know. Is this like a supernatural tree and you eat the fruit of it and it changes you and you have supernatural knowledge of good and evil? I, I don't know. It may have just been a normal tree, but to eat of it is sin. And so you would know sin by experience. We don't really know what's going on with this tree. God doesn't tell us much about the tree. What he does make clear is the prohibition and the penalty. He makes it really clear, you are not to eat of it. He makes the penalty crystal clear. If you do, you will surely die. Actually, in Hebrew, it just says, you will die, die. You will die really badly, is the idea. So he makes the prohibition and the penalty really clear. Now, when we looked at that in chapter two, it led us to ask, why would God plant a forbidden tree in the middle of his garden? I have two three-year-olds. If there's something I don't want them to touch, I don't put it in the middle of the living room. I put it up on a high shelf where they can't get to it. I don't want to give them the opportunity to sin. So why would God put this tree in the middle of the garden instead of like at the top of Mount Everest? Well, we looked at that a few weeks ago and what we realized is that this tree, this forbidden tree in the middle of the garden is actually a gracious opportunity. Because when God made Adam and Eve in his image, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, a big part of that is that humans are created with the ability to make God-like moral choices. You can make a moral choice. That's that's the privilege of being a human being. That's at the essence of what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. You have the privilege of making a choice, a real, free, moral choice. No dog, no cat, no cow can make a moral choice. You can. God made Adam and Eve with this incredible, privileged ability to make moral choices, and so right at the center of the garden, he gives them an opportunity. The tree is grace. The tree is an incredible opportunity for Adam and Eve to be fully human, to live out the image of God by making a free choice to love and be loyal to God. Okay, so the tree is an incredible opportunity. So when we get to the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve are enjoying perfect harmony with God, with one another, and with creation in this blessed garden. Now that perfect harmony is interrupted at the beginning of chapter 3 with the entrance of temptation. So so temptation sneaks into the garden in chapter 3. Let's look at how temptation begins. Look with me at verse 1. Moses tells us, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Moses tells us that temptation arrives in the form of a talking snake. Now here's the, the weird part, the surprising part. Moses doesn't bother to tell us why the snake can talk. That would be interesting to know. He also doesn't tell us why Eve's not surprised. Why is she not shocked at the fact that the snake can talk? Moses doesn't care about that. He doesn't really care about why the snake can talk. What does he care about? He cares about what the snake has to say. That's what Moses focuses on. In fact, the only thing he tells us about the snake, two little things. First of all, he tells us it's part of God's creation. It's one of the beasts of the field. So God made the snake. Second, he tells us it's very crafty. In Hebrew, that word crafty, it means clever. It's kind of like the English word smart or or intelligent. It's like being smart in English. Being smart is, is neither good nor bad. It's good if you use your intelligence for good. It's bad if you use it for bad. The snake, he is going to use his cleverness for evil. Now, that is actually the clue that Moses gives us that this is no mere snake. Because think about it. When was the snake made? Genesis chapter 1. And what did God say at the end of Genesis chapter 1? Everything I've made is very good. There, there is no sin here. There is no evil here. Snakes are not evil creatures. The snake was good. What Moses is telling us is that this is no mere snake. Something's going on here. You don't know for sure until actually the very end of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John finally tells us what was going on in that snake. Revelation twelve nine: the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So the snake is possessed by Satan, God's archenemy. Now, interestingly, the book of Genesis tells us almost nothing about Satan. It's not till later in scripture that God fills in the details. And what we learn about Satan is that Satan is actually an angelic being. It's actually the the greatest, most powerful, most beautiful angel God ever created. But Satan became so enamored by his beauty and power that he decided to worship himself instead of God. He rebels against God and he establishes his own counterfeit kingdom in competition against God's kingdom. Now, Satan can't create anything. He's not a god. All he can do is take what God has created and twist it and destroy it. And so that's what he's going to do all the way through the Bible, twist and destroy what God has made. And so Satan looks down at this very good world that God has made, and he asks himself, how can I destroy this? Well, very simple. He's going to go after the top of creation. He's going to corrupt creation from the top down. He goes after the image bearers, after Adam and Eve. But as Satan looks at Adam and Eve, he recognizes at this point in their lives, Adam and Eve are innocent. They're not like you and me. They don't have a sin nature. That won't come until the second half of chapter three. They have no inward disposition towards sin. There's nothing inside of them that tempts them to disobey God. They're innocent, so Satan realizes he is going to have to sneak into the garden and light the fire of temptation in them. He's going to have to give them the spark, the idea of disobeying God. And that's not true for us. We're not like Adam and Eve. We're not innocent. We're born sinners who, who desire sin. We, we can sin without Satan. We can sin on our own very well. But whether temptation comes from an internal source, from ourselves, or from an external source like Satan, it always works in the same way. The progress of temptation in Genesis 3 for Eve is the same as the progress of temptation in your life and in my life. So let's look at that. Let's see how temptation unfolds for Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at this progression of temptation. Okay, the first step in this progression of temptation will be three steps as Satan leads Eve towards sin. Step number one in this progression of temptation, he attacks her heart. He attacks her heart. It's really interesting. Satan doesn't begin with a frontal assault. You'll notice, look again at verse 1, Satan doesn't actually say anything about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in verse 1. He doesn't say anything about the tree. He doesn't go with a frontal assault. He's too clever for that. Instead, Satan goes for her heart. He seeks to, to grow within Eve an attitude that is ungrateful. That's his goal. He's going to capture her heart by by building within her, leading her to a frame of mind that is ungrateful for the good things God has done. So he's going to try to get her to become ungrateful. Now, how does he do that? Well, look specifically at what Satan says. He says, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. What is Satan doing there? He is exaggerating God's prohibition exaggerating. And and it sounds, when you read it, like, like it's a question, like Satan is actually asking, hey, I'm not clear on this. What has God said? It's not really. When you look at it in Hebrew, it would sound more like this in Hebrew. Eve, indeed, to think, did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? It's like Satan is surprised, he's a little bit shocked. You kind of get the picture that that Satan's acting as if he's heard a rumor going around the garden. I don't know what animals are talking to other animals here, but but there's some rumor going around about what God has said. And, And it sounds really bad. It makes God sound really mean and really harsh. And so Satan is coming to Eve. Really? Did God say this? And notice how he exaggerates God's prohibition. You can't eat from any tree of the garden. Is that what God said? Not at all not at all. This is a ridiculous exaggeration. This is utterly absurd. But that's the point. Satan knows exactly what God said. Remember, Moses said he's very clever. He's very smart. He knows what God has said. He is exaggerating on purpose to grow within Eve a a thought, an idea that, that maybe God's not so good after all. Maybe God is a little more restrictive than I thought. He exaggerates God's prohibition to lead Eve down the path of ungratefulness. What he does reminds me a lot of what my kids will sadly do on occasion. They don't do this all the time by any means. But but occasionally, Julie or I have to say no to something that my kids ask for. And when we do that, sometimes on their worst days, they will stomp their foot, get a growl on their face and say, you never let me have any fun. I don't know who taught them that. Wow, it's amazing that they, they know that already. Uh, well, I asked them, really? Well, I never let you have any fun. So when I gave you that toy, that, that wasn't fun. And when I took you to the park and you were running around laughing and screaming, that wasn't fun. And when I gave you piggyback rides until you couldn't stop giggling, that wasn't fun because I never let you have any fun. It, it's absolutely ridiculous what they're thinking about reality but that's exactly what temptation wants to make you think about God. Temptation wants to lead you to exaggerate God's prohibition, to to see God as mean and stingy and holding out on you. It exaggerates what God has said no to. So that is how Satan sows the idea of ungratefulness in Eve's heart, how he leads her down this path of ingratitude. So how does Eve respond? Let's look. Look at verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now what is Eve doing here? Sadly, she's beginning to succumb. She's beginning to give in to this ungratefulness that Satan wants to inspire within her heart. Now at first it may not seem obvious, but look at what Eve says. Look very carefully, verse 2. From the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. Is that what God said? Look at chapter two, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. What words has she dropped? Any and freely. Those crucial words that emphasize the extravagance of God's blessing. She's dropped them. Yeah, we can eat from any tree. We can eat from the trees of the garden. She's just dropped those words. She has lost sight of how good God is. She is minimizing God's provision. She's minimizing the good that God has done in her life. She's losing sight of how kind God has been to her. Instead, look what she does in verse three. Look carefully. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it. Is that what God said? No, no. He just said, don't eat from it. Eve added the don't touch it part all on her own. What's she doing? Just like Satan, she is exaggerating God's prohibition. What's going on here is that Satan is leading Eve towards an ungrateful heart. He is capturing her affections. He is is changing how she sees reality. She's getting tunnel vision is, I think, the easiest way to think about it. So so God has given her all of this good stuff. There's just one thing she can't have. Satan is fixating her attention on that one thing God said no to so that she loses sight of all the things God said yes to. That's how temptation works in us. Fixate on the one thing God says no to and lose sight of all the good things he said yes to. As a result, Eve begins to lose touch with the reality of of how blessed she is. That's what temptation will do within us. As it attacks our heart, Satan wants to get us to forget how incredibly blessed we are. He wants us to lose touch with that reality. That's what happens all the time through temptation. I found an interesting example yesterday. Here are a list of, of actual complaints that were received from dissatisfied customers by Thomas Cook Vacations. So, so these are people who just got to go on really nice vacations somewhere, but they weren't happy about it. They weren't satisfied. And here is why they are unsatisfied with their vacation. Here's a few of the reasons. Reason number one, the beach was too sandy. We had to clean everything when we returned to our room. Okay. <laughs> Here's the second one. We found the sand was not like the sand in the brochure. Your brochure shows the sand is white, but it was more yellow. Okay, really? All right, here's my favorite. It took us nine hours to fly home from Jamaica to England. It took the Americans only three hours to get home. This seems unfair. Uh, Here's another one. We had to line up outside to catch the boat, and there was no air conditioning. And here's the last. This is great. I was bitten by a mosquito. The brochure did not mention mosquitoes. (laughs) Who are these people? (laughs) This is ridiculous. You just got to go on a nice vacation to a tropical place and all you can do is complain about a mosquito bite or the length of your flight home. That's ridiculous. They have lost touch with the reality of how blessed they are. That's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do when temptation begins to build in our hearts. It leads us to fixate on what we don't have and make a big deal of it and neglect all that we do have. We make small what God has given and make big what he's held back. We lose touch with the reality of how blessed we are. That is the first stage of temptation. Satan wants to grab our hearts by inspiring within us an attitude that is ungrateful. So Satan has begun to capture Eve. He has captured her heart. Now he goes after her mind. That's step number two. He's going to go after her mind. He is going to go after her mind with deception. That is what Satan frequently does. Jesus puts it this way in John eight forty four. 44. The devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, if you asked a Hollywood director, how does Satan attack people? He would say, well, with like fiery swords and flaming demons and scary, scary stuff. No, that's not true. Satan really isn't interested in scaring you. What he wants to do is deceive you. That's his primary tactic against us. He wants to deceive us. He doesn't want us to be afraid of him. He wants us to believe the lies he tells. And so he goes after Eve with a couple lies. Look with me in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There are two lies embedded in these two verses. Two lies that Satan uses against Eve. They are the same lies he will use against you and against me. So let's look at these lies. Lie number one, that Satan sows in Eve's mind, you can't trust God's word. That's verse four. Satan takes God's Penalty, threatened penalty, you shall surely die, and he simply negates it. No, you surely will not die. Satan wants to cause Eve to doubt the truthfulness of God's word, particularly what his word says about the seriousness of sin. That's, that's the heart of what, what Satan is gonna go after. He wants us to doubt that God was, was serious when he says that sin leads to death. So Satan is going to try to undermine our belief in the seriousness of sin. So he's going to try to whisper in your ear, man, pornography, that's really no big deal. Everybody does that. It doesn't hurt anybody. You don't have to worry about that. Lying, come on, everybody lies. It's not possible to make it through life without lying. So it is no big deal when you tell a lie. If you cheat on that test or on your tax return, no one's going to find out. You will never be caught for that. Satan is constantly trying to undermine our belief that sin is serious. So yesterday, I was reading the New York Times op-ed. And the author of this op-ed, his goal was to convince us that it is actually good for you to have sex outside of marriage. Actually, what's bad for you is abstinence. Abstinence is going to rob your life of joy. He promised you, if you get to the end of your life and you look back and you have only had sex with your spouse, that's it. You will be so filled with regret. That's exactly what Satan wants us to believe, that sin isn't that bad, that it's not going to hurt you. Satan wants us to believe that when God said the penalty of sin is death, he was kidding. That's the goal. Let's undermine the seriousness of sin. Satan doesn't want us to believe that sin is a big deal. So that's his first lie. He's going to go after and attack the truthfulness of God's word, especially what it says about the seriousness of sin. The second lie that Satan is going to use against us, he's going to try to convince us that you can't trust God's goodness. It's interesting. Satan doesn't go after God's holiness or his power or his wisdom. He goes after his goodness. He tells Eve, Eve, God knows, he knows that if you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. In other words, Eve, don't you understand? It is within God's power to give you something incredibly good, something you, you don't even realize how badly you want it. You get to be divine like God himself, but, but he's holding out on you, Eve. He doesn't care about you. He's not giving you what's good. He's not giving you what's good, Eve, because he's selfish he's mean. He doesn't want competition. So he's holding out on you. You cannot trust God to be good to you. So Eve, you got to take matters into your own hands, girl. You got to reach out and get what you can because you're the only one who cares about you. You can't trust God's goodness. Satan tries to undermine Eve's belief in the goodness of God. That's exactly what he's going to do to you and me. I actually, I think this is Satan's favorite play to run against us undermine our belief in the goodness of god and so you are going to hear him whisper in your mind if god was really good then why would he give you a spouse like this everybody else's spouse is prettier kinder more caring more godly more fun if god was really good then why would he make you with these really strong desires inside of you and then say no you can't act on them how in the world is that good if god was really good then why would he make your life so hard Why would he cause you to suffer from this disease or or lose a loved one or struggle to pay your mortgage or suffer from depression? How in the world is that good? Satan is going to do everything he can to undermine our belief in the goodness of God because if he can win that battle, if he can cause us to doubt the goodness of God, he has won the day. Sin comes quickly if we buy into that lie. So at the end of verse five, Satan has done his work. He has built, he has sown, he has whispered these lies in Eve's mind. You cannot trust God's truthfulness. You cannot trust God's goodness. The question for us is, how will Eve respond? Will she choose to believe the truth or will she choose to believe the lie? Look at verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. It's interesting, in verse 6, Satan's not in it at all. Satan's not in verse 6, because here's why. Satan can't make Eve sin, just like he can't make you sin. It's not within Satan's power to make us sin. No, we're human beings. We, we have the right, the power of choice, we are responsible for the choices that we make. And so all Satan can do is plow the ground, if you will. He just, he just plows the ground with ungrateful thoughts, with, with deceptive lies, and then he steps back and he lets Eve make her free decision. Will Eve choose to believe the truth or believe the lie? She believes the lie. She gives in to the deception. She gives in to sin. Now, actually, Eve's failure, her giving in to sin, it begins right at the beginning. Because what is Eve doing at the very beginning of verse 6? She's looking at the tree. She's looking at the tree and analyzing it. She's thinking about whether it's good or bad. What does that tell us about the frame of, of Eve's mind? It means that she no longer trusts God. She doesn't trust God to tell her what is good and bad. Now, she can't trust God to be good or true. She will be the judge of what is good and true. She's not going to let God be God anymore. Now it's time for her to step up and be the judge in her own life of what is good and what is not. And so Eve is already failing. She is already falling as she looks at this tree and she analyzes the tree. Is it good or is it bad? And notice, what does she observe? Well, it's quite good. It's, It's good for food. Lots of good looking food on that tree and and it's beautiful to look at. It's good for the eyes. And best of all, it's good to make you wise. It will give you knowledge. So you notice everything that Eve observes about the tree is good. The tree is all good. And that's a good reminder to us. Satan will occasionally tempt us towards something that is bad, like, like drugs or violence. But usually what he likes to do is tempt us towards something that is good. But he tempts us to enjoy it or take of it in a way that is bad or at a time that is bad. So let's take the example of sex. Is sex good or bad? It's good. God made it. It's a gift. It is all good. What does Satan want to do? He wants to tempt you to take that good thing in a way or at a time that is not good. Another example, getting good grades at school. Is that good or bad? Well, That's good. It's good to get A's at school. So what is Satan going to tempt you to do? He's going to tempt you to get those good grades in a way that is not good. He's going to tempt you to cheat or he's going to tempt you to worship your studies. That's what I did. For the first two and a half years of my time here at a and I worshiped my classes. I went to church on Sunday mornings and that was it. No small group Bible studies, no service projects, nothing for anybody else. All I did was pour myself into my books. Why? Because Satan took a good thing and made it bad for me. He led me to worship my greats. That's how Satan loves to operate. Take good things and tempt you to enjoy them at a time or in a way that is not good. So Eve looks at the tree and concludes it is good. Yes, it is, Eve. God made it. It is all good in every possible way. So let's understand, obedience doesn't come down to a cost-benefit analysis. It comes down to letting God be God. Will you choose to believe that God is true, that God is good? Will you let him be the determiner of what is right and wrong? Will you trust God even when sin looks appealing? That's the question that faces Eve. And the answer for her is no. No. Satan has captured her heart. He has built within her an attitude of of ungratefulness. He has captured her mind. He has deceived her into believing that God is not true and not good. The final step of temptation is he captures the will. He captures the will to act. Temptation is, is fully given birth to. Here it is conceived and Eve reaches out and takes of the apple. And it's really interesting. The actual commission of sin when Adam and Eve fall, it's incredibly short. Incredibly short, right there at the end of verse six, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Just four short verbs. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Boom, it's done. It's anticlimactic. It's over. What Moses is telling us is is the real battle with sin is in the heart and in the mind, not in the hands. If he can win your heart and win your mind, your hands will follow very quickly. The will will follow the heart and the mind. So Eve has given to temptation her heart and her mind. Her will follows suit. Eve falls into sin. And so does Adam. We look at Eve's sin and we tend to focus on that. We forget about Adam's sin. Adam does not look very good in verse 6. Not only does he eat the apple, but Moses tells us Adam was with her. Did you notice that preposition? In Hebrew, it means Adam was with her the whole time. Verses one to six, Adam is standing there completely silent, saying nothing, doing nothing. Even though he was there first, he had had the longer relationship with God, he is completely passive. He says nothing, doesn't protect his wife, doesn't do anything. His sin is actually worse. Uh, You see this in a, a passage that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.14. Paul says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Guys, sometimes we look at that passage from Paul and we think, ha ha, look at us. We do not get deceived, we are smart. No, that's not what Paul's doing here. This is not good news for Adam. Because think about it, both Adam and Eve sin, right? Well, at least Eve could claim she was deceived. Adam, he doesn't have that to fall back on. No, Adam sinned with eyes wide open. Eve sinned because she was deceived. Adam sinned because he didn't care. He didn't care enough about God to obey. He didn't care enough about Eve to protect her. Adam's sin is worse than Eve's. They both fall into sin for different reasons, but they both fall into sin. And that sin unleashes catastrophic consequences upon them. But we'll look at that next week. So next week, we'll look at the consequences. For this week, we just wanted to focus on how they fell, on this progression of temptation. Failure didn't happen in an instant. It built up through a series of bad decisions that led them to sin. So let's conclude by applying that to our lives. What are the lessons that God has to teach us? Well, James chapter 1, verse 14 Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Lust, that is temptation. What James is telling us is exactly what happened to Eve is what happens to us. When we let temptation build within us, it carries us away into sin and death. It's like, that. you can picture it this way, this is how temptation works. It's like a train that builds up steam. It's a train that is headed towards a destination called sin and death. If you ride on that train, you will end up in sin. That's what will happen to your life. If you let temptation build, failure won't happen in an instant. It will take you there down a series of bad decisions that culminate in sin. So that's the bad news. The good news is, if temptation is like a train, then the way to avoid going to the destination of sin is just get off. Just get off. If you get off the train, if you put a stop to temptation before it builds to sin, then you can escape sin. Sin is never unavoidable. You do not have to give in to sin, not now, not ever. You are a child of God. You can defeat sin. Sin is never unavoidable, but to avoid it, you must get off the train of temptation. You must get off that progression that builds in your life and carries you towards sin. How do you do that? By making any one of these three good decisions that Adam and Eve failed to make. Learn from their mistakes. Make one of these good decisions. You can avoid sin by, number one, just fleeing, When temptation begins to build, hop off the train, run away. The tragedy of Genesis 3, I don't know if you've recognized this, the whole temptation thing could have ended if Eve did what? Turned around. All she had to do is turn around and walk away, and it's done. Satan wasn't wasn't handcuffing her to the tree. There was no fence confining her there. She could have walked away at any time. That's what Joseph will do. We'll see towards the end of the book of Genesis when Potiphar's wife will proposition him for sex. What does the boy do? He just runs, just lickety split, runs out of the house. That's right, when temptation comes, if it is in your power, flee from it. And and better yet, avoid situations where you'll know you'll be tempted. Don't even wait for temptation to show up. Just run away from situations that you know will tempt you. It's not a good idea for boyfriends and girlfriends to snuggle in bed at 11 p.m. at night. No, you're just asking for it. That's a situation that will tempt you. Here's an example from my own life very recently. I love to watch a show I don't know if you've ever heard of. It. It's called Top Gear. It's a British show where these three old guys drive cars really fast, so like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Porsches, and, and I love fast cars, so I love to f- watch this, this show, top gear, I love to watch these men drive these exotic cars, but here was the problem, I'd watch the show at night, and then I'd go to bed and i wake up, and in the morning I'd go out to the garage and I would get in my Honda Accord, <laughs> <laughs> and I would feel sad, <laughs> and I would feel jealous because I don't have a Ferrari, I'm never going to have a Ferrari, and I would begin to think about all the things that I don't have in life. I began to notice, man, that, that is the train of temptation. That's where temptation wants to take me. It wants to fixate my attention on what I don't have. So Top Gear, it's off my list. Off limits to me, at least until I grow up some more. So that one's off the list, because I'm not going to be a fool. I'm not going to willingly choose to put myself in a situation where I know I'm going to be tempted. That's just stupid. Whenever it's within your power, flee temptation or avoid it in the first place. That's the first way that you get off this train, that you avoid the progression of temptation before it turns into sin. Second way you do it, you practice gratitude. practice gratitude. Here's something that that I noticed going through the passage this week that I'd never noticed before. What does Eve see that is good in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, she sees it's good for food. It's beautiful to look at, and it'll make you wise. Here's the sad part. Eve already had all three of those things. She had food as far as the eye could see. A huge garden full of wonderful, tasty food. And beauty, she had a whole planet full of beauty that she hadn't even seen most of it yet. And wisdom, the girl got to walk with the creator of wisdom every day in the cool of the garden. She had everything this tree could offer her. That's the power of ingratitude. It blinds you to all the good things God has blessed you with you lose touch with reality, you fixate on what you think you don't have and then sin becomes reasonable. The only way to battle that is to practice the discipline of gratitude. Gratitude doesn't come naturally to us. We're sinners. We're by nature ungrateful. So you have to practice this as a discipline. So two steps. Number one, when you wake up every morning, I encourage you, this is something I try to do as well. When you wake up, list out in your mind five things you are grateful about from the day before wake up, you're laying in bed, you haven't had your coffee yet, make yourself stop and remember five good things from the day before. Then you are beginning every day from a a frame of reference that is grateful. You are beginning with a grateful heart that will give you so much strength as the day progresses. So first, practice gratitude in the morning. And then second, practice it when temptation sets in. So at some point, temptation is going to set in and it is going to begin to try to capture your heart. It is going to try to convince you that you are not blessed, that God has not been good to you. It's going to try to fixate you on the things you don't have, like like the the things you don't like about your job or about your spouse or about your body or about your, your house. It's going to try to fixate you on the things you don't like. So as soon as you feel that, as soon as you feel ingratitude building, I challenge you, stop right there in the moment and force yourself to list out five things you are grateful about in, in regards to whatever it is that temptation is attacking. So if it's, if it's your spouse, stop and list five things you're grateful for about your spouse. If it's your job, stop and list five things that you're grateful about about your job. If it's your body, stop and list five things you're grateful about about your body. Practicing gratitude is like pouring water on a fire. It, it quenches temptation. The power of temptation just disintegrates. If you will practice this discipline of gratitude, stop and list five things you're grateful for. So that's the second step. You protect your heart by practicing gratitude. It's almost like you're putting a shield over your heart when you stop and practice that discipline of gratitude. Third step, you protect your mind by reading and memorizing the word. You read and memorize the word of God so that you can know God's truth and you can spot deception. So when Satan comes and tempts Jesus, what does Jesus do? He quotes the word of God. Three times Satan attacks, three times Jesus quotes to him a perfectly chosen, perfectly memorized passage from the Old Testament. Because Jesus knows the way you fight temptation is with the word of God. I cannot tell you how many times in my life Psalm 23 has delivered me from sin. I felt temptation growing in me. It feels like it's taking hold of me. And so I stop and force myself to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, leave me beside still waters, over and over again. I quote Psalm 23, and it is powerful. It is God's truth. It delivers me from deception. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Romans 6. All of these passages, you read them, you memorize them, you meditate upon them. And then when temptation is building inside of you, you fight back by quoting scripture. Over and over again, like a mantra, a mantra of truth that will protect your mind from deception. You don't ever have to sin again. Sin is never unavoidable for a child of God. But you must choose. You must choose to get off the train of temptation. As temptation is building in your life, you must choose one of these three things. Either flee, begin to practice gratitude, or read and memorize the word of God. Do something to get off that train before it takes you down the path that leads to sin and death. Let's pray for God's help. God, we thank you and praise you that you are a good and gracious God. We thank you that you created us. In love, you have given us all that we need. We thank you that though Adam and Eve plunged us into sin, though we ourselves sin all the time, we thank you, Lord, that you have taken care of our sin by sending your son, Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to take the penalty of our sin upon himself and then rise from the dead, conquering sin. We thank you that you give us forgiveness as a free gift. It's not something we have to earn. Thank you for that, God. God, we thank you that now you have forgiven us. You also empower us through your spirit who lives inside of us. We never have to sin again. You give us the strength. You give us the ability to walk in obedience if we will simply practice these very concrete steps. I pray, Father. When we feel temptation coming, whether it's today or later this week, I pray, Father, that as soon as it comes, that you would bring these lessons to our minds, that we would not follow the path that Adam and Eve walked down, that we would flee temptation, that we would stop and practice gratitude, that we would read and memorize your word. I pray, Father, help us to be wise. Help us to practice these steps that can deliver us from the progression of temptation and help us to walk in truth and in holiness. I pray, Father, that this week you would grow each and every one of us to be more like you, more like your son, Jesus Christ, that we would walk in faith, that we would walk in obedience, that we would glorify and honor you with our lives. Thank you so much for your love, your grace, your forgiveness, and your power, all made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. We'll See you next week as we continue Genesis 3.